If you would, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That's an Old Testament book. You got 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 King, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Kind of just in the middle of the Old Testament there. Um, possibly a more difficult book than some to find, but maybe a quarter of the way in your Bible there. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 11 through 14. Now, we are looking today at prayer, a prerequisite for revival. Revival. That, that word uh, carries a lot of different connotations to a lot of different people. And uh, I don't think I've ever put the word revival in one of my sermon titles. Uh, and that is actually because I am somewhat uncomfortable with the word. Um, and, and I've talked again with some of you, and, and we all know that, that this word revival gets used pretty loosely and even uh, wrongly, I would say, in our culture today, uh, in, in so-called Christian culture today. Um, and, and I want to talk about that. I, I just want to like confront that because like, I mean, I had to kind of force myself to put the word revival in this uh, sermon title because when I think about revival and, and when, I, when I read my Bible and when I look at, at history, revival is an amazing gift of God. Revival is absolutely something that you and I should desire, that we should pray for, and that we should pursue. It absolutely is. But we do need to address that elephant in the room that this word revival is often uh, just tagged on whatever people uh, want to call it. And, and so uh, basically, I'll just tell you from my experience, what I have seen that I would say is not necessarily what the Bible would call revival. Some of them are, are very far from the reality. Uh, others are a little closer and, you know, it's, it's understandable. But um, uh, these are all what I would consider to be uh, misuses of this word revival. Um, I have seen revival uh, be, be basically at, at churches kind of putting on a revival and it just ends up being a form of entertainment, a form of spectacle, and actually a form of self-aggrandization by uh, usually the pastor or the leadership. And I have seen it, um, again, like, we, I, I'm not telling you I'm perfect as a pastor and that I don't struggle with pride and, and, and uh, self-centeredness and things like that. But, but I have watched a pastor stroke his ego in front of huge crowds and just trying to get them fired up for the sake of pass on the back uh, for him. And, um, you know, I try to be as, as gracious as I can, but it, it was hard not to leave with my heart uh, not heavy and a little bit disgusted at, at what I had just watched. And so that was a so-called revival uh, that I attended one time uh, because I was curious. And I'm like, you know, hey, God, if this is something you're doing, then I, I want to be a part of it. it. It was not the real thing. <laughs> I can just tell you it was not the real thing. Uh, another thing we might hear as, as revival is, is actually just a fundraising campaign um, that, that like, well, let's all get together, let's all get excited. And I, I have a quote, I don't even know, um, I may not have written it down, 
but someone said, uh, generosity, this is what they said from, from their stand, you know, uh, in this revival, revival, generosity goes hand in hand with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, like, if the Holy Spirit's anointing you, then you should be giving, and I mean, it really was just a fundraising campaign to, to line the pockets of this preacher in, in ministry, and, and that, that's not revival. That's not, that's not revival at all, and so that's certainly not what we're talking about. Um, Another kind of revival, and this one, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, because I, I know it happens around here, uh, but a revival is not just getting together in a tent out in the backyard of the church or whatever and singing gospel music together. That, that's not revival. Like that's, There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being in a tent. I love tents. I love camping. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a tent. There's nothing wrong with gospel music. There's nothing wrong. I mean, that, that's great, but I would say that is not a biblical revival and, and so what we need to do today is, is, is say, okay, if revival is one of the most beautiful gifts from God, if revival is something that I should desire, that I should pray for, that I should pursue, then what is it and what does it look like to pray for it? What does it look like to pursue it? And so, so what we need to do is rather than let uh, Christian culture define revival for us, we need to let the Bible uh, define it for us. And so that is what we're going to see here in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. And I want to mention to you, um, the Bible is filled, literally cover to cover, with revivals. The Bible is filled with revivals happening over and over. The, the book of Judges, like it could have been called the book of revivals, like so many times uh, the Israelites would drift away from God, then he would bring trouble, and then they'd cry out, and then God would revive them. He'd bring a new spiritual vigor and fervor and, 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 and repentance of sin and pursuing God's will. Uh, I mean, but you, you see that all over the place in the Bible, cover to cover. The Bible is full of examples of revival happening. But what I want to show you today from Second uh, Chronicles 7 uh, again, 11 through 14, is not an example of a revival happening, but God foretelling and prescribing revival to the people of Israel. And so he, what we're going to see uh, in these verses as we read them in just a moment is when, when, when God is talking about revival here in Second Chronicles, Israel is doing really, really well spiritually. Uh, this in context, this will be Solomon has just built the temple. They've just made thousands. We're talking like twenty something oxen, twenty something like I mean just twenty something thousand oxen. Sorry, with thousands upon thousands, the altar cannot handle the amount of sacrifices that that Solomon and the people of Israel are making to God. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. It consumes sacrifice. I mean, this is an amazing event where this happens in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Like, you, you, you could say the people of Israel are on a mountaintop. But God is aware that that won't last forever. That his people will drift away from him. That their hearts will become cold. That their affections will turn to other things. That their lives will be given to idolatry and to sin. And so God prescribes revival here in 2 Chronicles 7. In the midst of an amazing mountaintop, spiritual mountaintop, God is going to prescribe 
revival. And so 2 Chronicles 7, like you're, you're going to know these verses, by the way, as we read them. You're going to know them, and, but they're so helpful because God gives the DNA of what revival is and what it looks like. And so let's read that together. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon the Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. The prayer, by the way, is in chapter 6, the, the previous chapter. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Okay, so that's the context. Now we come to verses 13 and 14. This is going to prescribe uh, revival and, and give us the anatomy of revival. Verse 13, God says, When I shut up the heavens... So that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence, that's disease, send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's revival. Okay, that, that, those final words, like this forgiveness, this, this healing, this corporate healing of the people of Israel, spiritually, physically, this is revival that God is talking about. And so what I want to do is walk through these verses, these verses that God feels the need to give them this prescription for revival, when they're in the middle of a mountaintop spiritual experience, I want us to break it down so that we can understand, well, well, what would that look like today? How would we know if we need revival? How would we pursue revival? And so I, I want to begin, and I've told you already, I mean, it's in the title, we're going to talk about prayer. Like prayer is what I want you to walk away with today, but that is not where we are going to start today, because that's not where revival starts. Because if we, if we start talking about revival, and the first thing we talk about is our human responsibility to pray, what are we going to walk away with? We're going to walk away with the, the understanding that revival is my idea, revival is my desire, and, and when revival happens, I get the credit for it. I prayed for it. I made it happen. But that is not the way revival works. That is not the biblical DNA of true revival. And so here's where I want to begin from this passage. Number one, true revival begins with God. True revival begins with God. It does not begin with us. We, we should never believe that, that, that revival is our idea, that revival is our plan, that we're the originators of it, or that we are the ones who bring revival about. True revival begins with God. And so I want to show you this from the text. I think it's very important that we recognize that whatever we may do, whatever uh, 
ways we may be involved in revival, it's God who is pushing revival. It's God who is creating and causing revival, not us. Beginning to end, it is God. And so I, I want to show you this. And so first we think about it, you know, verse 14 is the, the verse that we all uh, recognize. I'll just read it for you. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so that's the, the passage we know. And, and we, we say, okay, there's my responsibility. There's how we cause revival the problem with that thinking is it's removing that verse from context. And I don't know if that's you know, where you're at or whatever, but I'm just saying it'd be easy to do to read verse, verse 14 and entirely forget about verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me that it says right before that, that famous uh, revival uh, verse. 2 Chronicles 7.13, God says, listen to this, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain... Or command the locust to devour the land. Or send pestilence among my people. Then, then we come to that verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and so on. But there is something that precedes the humbling. There's something that precedes the prayer and the seeking his face and turning from sin. There is something that precedes it and it is God. It is God acting towards his people. I mean, just, just look at the verse again. I, I'm going to highlight things. We're going to read it again, but I'm going to highlight it. I want you to notice who the actor is in verse thir 13. I mean, verse 13, that's an ominous verse. We're talking about drought, which in an agrarian society, drought is deadly. We're talking about locusts devouring all the, the, the food source, uh, you know, plant life in the land. And we're talking about disease, pandemic amongst them. It's an ominous thing. It's calamity. It's, it, it, this is a big problem. But we have to notice who the actor is, who it is that is causing. It doesn't say if, the, if there happens to be a drought or if locusts happen to come or if there happens to be pestilence among you. Look at what it says. Verse 13, when God's saying this, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Or you could insert the word I. Or I command the locust to devour the land. Or I send pestilence, that's sending it, causing this disease among my people. This ominous verse, this treacherous verse, this, this verse filled with calamity for the people of God, God is saying, I am the one who is going to cause it. I am the one who will shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. I will command the locusts to devour the land. That's swarms of locusts to devour the land. I will send pestilence, disease, to run through the people. God is the one acting in this verse 13. And so, I mean, a, a good question at this point is, is, is why would God do this, right? Why would God be so cruel to his own people? I mean, is it just that God is cruel and mean? Does he just like to watch his people squirm? Wouldn't it be terrible if that were true? Wouldn't it be terrible if God is 
just cruel and mean and likes to watch us squirm and bring calamity on us. But that is not what we understand from this in context. So I want to show you why God says he is going to do this. Uh, First, and this is in your notes if you you want to follow it along there to, to fill it in. First, God is doing this. God is going to bring this calamity to expose their drift. God's going to bring this calamity to expose their drift. How do I know that they have drifted? Well, he says there, uh, you know, if my people turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive them. Like that, that's in verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, and then one of the things he lists is turn from their wicked ways. They have drifted into wickedness. Their hearts have grown cold and numb towards God. Their hearts have turned to idols and sin. And and one of the most terrifying things about drifting from God is it's just that. It's a slow and steady and almost imperceptible drift. You don't even realize it's happening. You don't realize that your your heart is growing cold towards God. You don't realize that you're no longer pursuing God and zealous for God the way you once were. And and over time, you're, you're living for him less, you're worshiping him less. And then over time, we start to turn to sin. And the Bible, again, tells us explicitly that sin is deceitful. Sin, sin has the power to deceive people, but the, the, the power of sin's deceit is mostly against us, the person committing the sinner. My heart deceives me, and I start to give in to little sins, and then those little sins become patterns of sin, then those patterns of sin become bigger sins and bigger patterns of sin. And that's where Israel is at. They have drifted, and so now they need to turn from their wicked ways so that God can forgive them. And so God is bringing tangible calamity upon them to reveal the invisible problems in their heart. I don't know about you, but I don't have like a thermometer that reads the temperature of my heart towards God. I, 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 I've trusted in Jesus. I, I'm a believer. Uh, but my heart does change in temperature. Your heart does change in temperature. My practical righteousness, my practical obedience does change, and it's so hard to know when that's happening. And so what God is saying he's going to do for Israel is he's going to send tangible calamity to show them that their hearts have grown cold, to show them that they have turned into sin. It is meant to expose their drift, this invisible, imperceptible drift. God is exposing it by bringing this calamity. Remember, this is God doing it. They have drifted. They didn't just say, hey, we should turn back to God. No, God sends calamity to even open their eyes to see that they have drifted. The second thing God is doing that we can see uh, in these calamities is God is revealing their powerlessness, their weakness, their utter inability to fix and heal themselves. That's what God is doing in this calamity. God is showing them. He is revealing their powerlessness. 
that by themselves, on their own, they cannot get out of their desperate situation, either physically or spiritually. And so the, the way that I see this here is, God says, uh, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, tell me, in an ancient society, or even today, when there is a prolonged drought, what power do we have to change things? Can you or I call the rain down? No. We cannot do it. You're saying someone did that. It's Elijah, by the way. Uh, but he did not call the rain down. He asked God to call the rain down. And that's the point. Israel cannot change. They cannot open the heavens. Or, or you think about the locusts. Swarms of locusts devouring the land. What's an ancient people going to do about that? Watch and cry and, and, and get very hungry. That's what they are going to do. That's all that they have power to do. They can go out there and pick off locusts off their crops all day long, and they won't put a dent in it. They can do nothing. They are powerless. Or what about pestilence, disease? So disease is flowing through this ancient people that they have something sort of like doctors, but uh, not, nothing like we have today. But even today, we've seen with, with COVID, like we're pretty powerless against these things. Like it's not in our control. We can't fix it. We can't heal ourselves. And that's the point. God wants to reveal their desperate situation. And so he does it in physical, tangible ways to reveal the spiritual ways that they are powerless. You can't fix your land. You can't make the rainfall. You can't remove the locusts. You can't uh, heal the disease. But you also can't make the rains of the Spirit fall on you, the, the refreshing grace of God. You can't cause that. You, you can't take this, this, this fruitlessness in your life because the locusts are devouring, right? You can't take this fruitlessness and make yourself fruitful. And you think about disease, this pestilence, your sinful heart, like you can't clean up yourself. You cannot do it. You are powerless. And so you have these physical symbols of spiritual realities to reveal their desperate situation, to reveal their powerlessness to heal themselves. And finally, that's not all God's doing. Hey, you've drifted. Hey, you're powerless. Like, if it ends there, that's a problem. But, but look at what else God is doing. Third, he's doing this to draw them back for God's glory and their good. God is revealing their drift. He's, he, he's revealing their powerlessness in order to draw them back to him, both for God's glory and their good. And I, I, those two things are honestly inseparable. God's glory and the good of his people, God's glory and our joy, they are inseparable. But, but we see this uh, there in verse 14, I put it on the screen. He says, if my people who are called by my name, if, if my people Israel... Who are people, people know, the, the world knows that Israel is called by my name, that they are Yahweh's people, that they are the people of the one true God. And so when Israel has drifted, when Israel has grown cold, when Israel has turned to sin and idolatry, it is bad for the reputation of God. His glory is not being put on display the way it deserves to be. It is not an accurate representation of who God is. And that's what God's saying. If my people who are called by my name, he, so he's speaking to his glory here, 
turn from their wicked ways, and I skipped a little there, turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so God's glory, the people who are called by my name, and now their good, I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And again, you have this tangible thing, I'll heal their land, which is actually more talking about healing their hearts. God wants to work for his glory and for their good, and so God brings calamity to even reveal to them that they've drifted, to reveal to them that they are powerless. But it's good. God is being gracious because he is pursuing his glory and their good. I, I want you to understand this. I think this is huge. Like if, we, if this is all I said and we walked out of here, I'd be okay with it. God bringing trouble or God making us uncomfortable by revealing the fact that we have drifted is a gracious thing from God. It is a grace of God that we feel, oh no, how have I fallen so far? It is a gracious gift of God. It is gracious that God shows us our utter powerlessness and his infinite power. Like, that's grace. When you realize, I cannot do the things I need to do. I can't do the things in my own heart that need to happen. I can't do the things in my family that need to happen. I can't do the things in my church that need to happen. I can't do the things in my community. The things that really matter, I cannot do. I'm utterly powerless. That is a gracious thing from God to reveal that to us. Jeff, you can do nothing without me. And it's a gracious thing because it is an opportunity to be drawn back for the glory of God and our own good, our joy in God. And so I, I just want to say, say to you right now, like, as we move into this 21 days of, of prayer and fasting, and I encourage you to be, you know, digging in God's word as you, you pray and fast uh, as well, like, don't be afraid of what you find. Don't be afraid of looking in the mirror and seeing that your your hair is all messed up and that you got junk on your face from, you know, drooling in the night. Like, you think about that. Like, how ridiculous would that be if before I come up here and stand on this stage, I were afraid in the morning to look in a mirror? Some of you say, you did? You looked in the mirror? Are you sure? I did. I put some water on my hair. Think about it. Like, how stupid would that be to say, I'm afraid to see what I look like. I'm going to get up on that stage anyways, no matter what my hair looks like, no matter if I got drool running, if I got sleep in my eye, I am afraid. No, it's a gracious thing to look in a mirror and see the state you are truly in. Why? Because that's an opportunity to change. That's an opportunity to move forward. That's an opportunity to be cleaned up, to become presentable. And so I, I, I just want to urge you, like, God does not always bring calamity. He does. God does sometimes bring calamity, brings trouble, brings trials, brings anxiety, brings fears, brings heartache into our lives in order that we would take stock of our spiritual lives. God does that, and that's good. It's the grace of God. But I would say it doesn't always work that way. It can actually just be that we pick up God's word and say, how do I stack up against this thing? 
My righteousness is in Christ, so I know I'm going to fall short of God's ideal. I know I'm going to fall short of where I should be. It's okay, though. My righteousness is in Christ, and God wants to reveal this to me. He wants to reveal my drift. He wants to reveal my powerlessness so he can draw me back and change me for his glory and my good. Do not be afraid of, of, of analyzing your life when trouble comes upon you and saying, is God trying to show me something here? Something about my spiritual state? Don't be afraid of opening God's word and not just looking for encouraging little verses. No, look, look, look at it like a mirror that says, how far do I fall short? My righteousness is in Christ and I need God to change me. Don't be afraid of community, right? Transparent community where we truly share what we struggle with it's good to have these things exposed. It's good to be around people who will call you out on your junk because we need to know where we're at. We need our drift exposed. We need our powerless revealed because that's the only way we will come back to him for his glory and our good. Now, revival begins with God. Like, this is not our idea. It's not our plan. It's certainly not our power. But... The only thing we should be afraid of isn't, isn't seeing how far we've fallen, isn't seeing the work that we need done in our life. The only thing we should be afraid of is not responding when God is seeking to begin revival in our lives and in our community. And so that, that's number two. The, the second thing I want to show you, the second principle I want to show you from this passage is true revival requires response. God is the beginner. God is the originator of revival. God is the one pushing it and pursuing it. But true revival does require a response from God's people. Revival is supernatural without a doubt. But revival is not magical or automatic. Revival does not simply happen to a people. You, you, you won't be cold and, and, and apathetic and indifferent towards God one day, then you wake up the next day and your, your heart is red hot for him, seeking his will. It does not happen that way. And you say, well, that was weird. All of a sudden, like, I, I, I love God with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength, and, and, and I'm, I'm seeking to love others for his glory. It does not happen that way. You won't be stuck in patterns of sin numb to them in many ways, but, you know, known in the back of your mind you shouldn't be doing it. You won't be stuck in patterns of sin, hiding your sin from others, and then just the next day you, you, you wake up and all of a sudden I'm free from sin. Like, oh, I don't even want that anymore, and I'm not going to do that anymore. And, you know, like, it does not work that way. Revival is not something that God just zaps us with. Revival is something that God begins and we respond to it. Again, we see this very clearly there in the way that verse 13 flows into verse 14. Verse 13 was, you know, if I bring drought, if I bring uh, the locust, if I bring, <coughs> excuse me, uh, disease, pestilence. But then verse 14, oops, there, it was already up there. Verse 14 has an if statement. That's a contingency, right? It could go one way or it could go another. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin 
and heal their land. Now, I, I, I want to pound this in for just a moment. I, I know uh, at least two times that I was studying um, while, while preparing for this sermon is, is Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8. Um, God is making this point. You guys have drifted, Israel. I have sent my prophets to warn you. I've given my word to warn you. I've, I've started to bring trouble. I've started to bring threats towards you, Israel, that my discipline is about to fall. The hammer is about to fall. God does those things. But here's what he points out in Isaiah 6 and 8. But you would not turn to me. You would not respond. It says uh, in both of those chapters that both the, the, the priests and the prophets, and you could call these false priests and false prophets, are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You may recognize that saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The point is, the priests and the prophets were saying, no, oh Israel, we're fine. Don't worry about it. Like, everything's good. We're still making sacrifices in the temple. Like, we're, we're still going through the religious motions. Don't, don't worry about these threats. Like, everything's fine. Peace, peace. When there is no peace, God says. And so I want us to be very careful uh, about being pacified, about finding ourselves content with where we are because of hollow things. And so what I mean by that is, well, you know, our church, like we're, we're a strong church. Why? Well, because we have church on Sunday and we have, you know, prayer meeting and youth and, and children's ministry on Wednesdays. Like we meet together, we, we, we put money in the offering plates. Surely we are a healthy church. I don't know. I'm not the prophet, by the way, saying you, you're terrible. I'm just telling you, we, we need to be listening to God. We need to not be listening to the world saying, oh, you know, as Christians, you, you like, as, once you've trusted in Christ, you've said the prayer, you're good after that. Just kind of coast until you get to heaven. No, that's, that's saying peace, peace when there is no peace. To say it's okay to be apathetic. It's okay to be cold towards God. Or when you think about the culture at large, it's okay to give yourself to sin. Whatever makes you happy, that's surely what God would want. Surely God won't discipline you for, for walking in patterns of sin, things that he has directly commanded you not to do. It's okay. We, we must not let culture at large, secular culture, or even Christian culture lull us to sleep on this. To, to say, no, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You don't need revival. We must respond, and he gives us here four different ways to respond. And I, I by the way, believe that all of these uh, can hinge on true prayer. And so I'll talk about that in, in just a moment. Uh, but all these hinge on, on, on true prayer as, as what I see as if, if we're truly praying, all these things uh, will, will happen and, and sort of lead to it anyways. So the first thing God gives, here's how you respond, friend. Here's how I need to respond. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. That's, that's the first thing, to humble ourselves. When I think about this, is like God is the one humbling us, right? Because God's the one who begins revival. God brings trouble into our lives. God, God reveals our drift. God shows our powerlessness but there is a sense in which we must agree with reality. We have to humble ourselves and say, okay, I'm, I'm done with the charade. I'm done faking. 
I have drifted from God. My heart is not red hot for God. I have allowed patterns of sin to creep in. And humility to humble myself would be to say, and I am utterly powerless to do anything about it in and of myself. Like that is reality. That's what it is to humble yourself uh, before God is to, to align with his reality that, that, we are, uh, that we have fallen short and that we don't have the power to bring ourselves up to where we need to be. So, so we, we humble ourselves. We agree with God. We agree with his word that we have fallen short. We, we take the, uh, the troubles and problems that he brings into our life and we say, I think you're pointing something out here. Like, and and, and we, we, we say, okay, I, this is where I am and I'm powerless to change it. Then, uh, and, and that's where, where what would, I would say even leads us to pray is that type of humility. To say, I'm not where I need to be. I can't, I can't get there on my own. And so we would pray. That's, that's, that's the necessary response to true humility, to truly agreeing with God that I can't do it, but I'm not where I need to be. Therefore, I'm going to ask God to do what I cannot do. That's what prayer is. I mean, that, there, there's more to prayer, but one of the main aspects of prayer is to ask God to do what I otherwise cannot do on my own. God, I need you to change my heart. God, I need you to change my family. God, I need you to change my church. God, I need you to change my community. God, you have to do this. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. And then we have a third thing here that I think is just an aspect of true prayer and seek my face. What does that mean? Seek my face. I would say it's seeking God as the goal. It's not just that I want my circumstances and my situation to get better. It's that I want more of God. It's, it's not just that, that I want my life to get cleaned up so that I look good before others. It's that I want God's glory to be put on display. I want to seek God's face. I want God's blessing to shine down on me. And you can even think of this uh, in another way that I think is important is to seek God's face, is to seek true relationship, interactional, intimate relationship with God. Like that's what a face is, like face to face. You know, Moses spoke with God face to face. It says in uh, Exodus 34, I think. Um, this, this, or anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> as a friend, like we're seeking God's face. God, I want you. I want to know you. I want your work. I want your intervention in my life. I don't just want my circumstances better. I don't want, just want things smoothed out. I, just, I don't just want my church to be doing better. I don't want just more numbers. Uh, I, I want you, God. I want your glory in my life. I want your glory shining in my people's life. I want glory shining through us. I want you, God. And that necessarily leads to the fourth one. If we're truly praying to God, if we're truly humbling ourselves before him, if we're truly praying, if we're truly seeking our face, then we will turn from our wicked ways. We'll say, those patterns that I've allowed to creep in unnoticed, those patterns that have grown in intensity, I'm going to set those at the feet of Jesus and I'm going to walk away from them. And then by his power, each and every day, I'm going to lay him down again, walk away, trust Jesus. I want to turn from my wickedness. 
I, I, I want to be clear here. God begins revival. God is entirely sovereign. God does things according to the counsel of his will, not our will. We cannot cause revival. I cannot promise revival. And revival, by the way, uh, is meaning a, a big, a corporate change. And, and we'll get there, talk more about that in a moment. That, that has an impact on the community. Like, I can't guarantee if you do these steps, it will happen. Here's what I can guarantee. If we do not respond to God in these ways, we will not see revival. We will be like Israel that Assyria and Babylon will come in and wipe us out. It will be like uh, the seven churches uh, in Revelation that God says, if you do not repent, I will wipe you out. And God did that with, with uh, different churches in Revelation, ones that their, their love had grown cold, uh, they, they were not doing the works that they had done, they turned from their first love, like all these different things that God's saying to the different churches, they've turned to sin, sexual immorality, they've, they've done all these things. God says, if you do not repent, I will wipe you out. I will remove your lampstand as is the, the wording there, but that's what it means. It, it will not go well if we don't respond to God. I can't promise revival, but I, I can promise revival will not happen if we don't respond to God in these ways. And, and, and I just want to just, again, you say, man, you're being awfully hard on us um, saying we need revival. It, it, the Bible says we need revival. Like, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, if you were to read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that's the prayer of Solomon. He says, basically, when the people turn into sin, when the people begin committing sins, and you begin to send pestilence, you begin to send locusts. God's responding to that prayer, by the way, in chapter 7. When these things happen, when the people turn from you, hear their prayer when they cry out. Like, Solomon knows that they are going to drift. That that is the, the natural, the, the, the fleshly thing to happen is that we will drift from God. That revival is going to be necessary. And then you have God affirming that here in chapter 7 in the verses. Like, when I send, or when I shut up the heavens, when I send locusts, when I um, send pestilence. Like, it, it's, it's an understood thing that, that because of our frailty, because of our forgetfulness, we will drift from God. And so again, it is a good thing to recognize, to ask God to show us where we're at, to show us our utter powerlessness so that we will cry out to him, we'll seek his face, we'll turn from our wicked ways. However, whatever degree of wickedness we're at, it is a good thing because without that, bad things will happen and revival will not and so, again, prayer. I see this centering around prayer. And I just want to encourage you with a few verses uh, that, that have been big for me as I think about prayer and, and my own saying, okay, I've got things to do, but I need to spend time with God in prayer. I've got things I would rather do that are more exciting maybe than prayer, but I'm going to spend time with God in prayer. Here are a few verses that encourage me. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Do you get that? <laughs> like, James is saying, and God, the Holy Spirit inspired James to say, there are things that could be different in your life if you would but pray. But you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you're not spending true time in prayer pleading with 
the Lord. Here's the next one, John 15, 7 to 8. Jesus says this, this great promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You say, I want to be fruitful. I want to impact this world for God's glory and the good of others. I want to be fruitful. I want my life to bear fruit. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Like this is God's desire. This is what God wants for you. But God wants us to ask. God wants to get the credit for the work he does, so he makes us ask him to do the work. He doesn't just do it for us, and then we say, look what I've done. No, we, we're, we're looking at him in powerlessness and weakness and, and just depending on him, desperate for him, and then he answers, and God gets the glory. The, the next one I see is this, just the kindness of God in this passage. Um, I, I love the way Jesus puts this. John 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Spend time with God in prayer. And so here, here's what I, I want for you. I want like this 21 days of prayer and fasting to just be a launching point for a new and, and renewed, revived prayer life with God that you say, I got to humble myself. Like I, I, I know that I'm either drifted right now or about to enter a drift because that is the natural direction our hearts go. We have to recognize our weakness. All of us, we need to recognize, I can't do anything of value without God. Therefore, I need to ask that I might receive. I need to, to, to ask whatever I wish and it will be done for me. Like, this is beautiful stuff. I, I'm hoping that all of you, your personal prayer life will be absolutely revamped in 2024. That we will seek that you'll, you'll seek God's face, that you'll let him reveal sin to you and repent of that sin by his power. I hope that you will do that. But there is one final point. I'll be super quick on this, that I want you, I want you to individually do these things. But number three, true revival requires Christian community. True revival, like that by definition, revival requires a community of people to, to, to have this, this wave of grace crash over all of them, for all of them to re be responding to God. Maybe not every single one, but a huge majority. True revival requires Christian community. And we, we see this there in the passage, the way God talks about it. Second Chronicles um, 7.14 if my people, not just if you, uh, you singular, you person, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, plural, 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And then I, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Like God doesn't just want to do individual segmented re, uh, renewals in our lives. God wants revival for us. God wants a, a wave of his grace to crash through our community, our, our, our church community that is, and then to overflow into the community around us. And I, I want to give you two reasons why this is so important. And we're going to spend, again, the rest of the series talking about this community growing as a Great Commission community. And so we need this to be done together. But I'll give you two reasons quickly why this matters. A loan renewal will not last. Like, so, so you say, I, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to get fired up about God. I'm going to, you know, repent of sin. Like, that's great. A, a, a renewal, your, your renewal between you and God is great. But if it remains a lone renewal, if it isn't connected to Christian community, others who are pursuing the same thing, it will not last. Your fire will burn out quickly. Um, what, one of the things I've learned camping and stuff is one of the best ways to put out a fire if, if you don't have water, if you don't have sand to pour on it, like, you know, a campfire, one of the best ways to put it out is to spread out the wood. Because the wood cannot keep going individually. They grow cold. They don't have the heat from the other logs keeping them going. So you keep it all together, that fire will burn all night. You spread it out, maybe, maybe, maybe an hour or so, and, and that most of them will just be barely smoldering. That, that's, that's how it works. And the same is true for us spiritually. You may get fired up about God. You may start repenting of sin. You may start pursuing God's will and God's glory spreading. But if it is not connected to the community, if you're not pursuing it with others, you will quickly grow cold. If you don't have others encouraging you, building you up, the warmth of their fire for God, warming you up, keeping you burning, it will not last. It will burn out quickly. And secondly, I believe this is true, a loan renewal won't be as fruitful. I, I just think about um, the candlelight ceremony we did uh, last Sunday. You know, we, lit, we light the one candle. Now, I know it was noon, so this room wasn't very dark, but the analogy still stands. You know, we have this, this um, candle up here, and then I invited some of you, not everyone, to come and light off that. I invited some of you to come up and light off this, so maybe... Five of you came up and lit off this main candle that represented Jesus. Now, if you, the ones who came up and lit off that candle, just went back to your seat and, and, and stood there holding your candle, like, how, how much impact, how much brightness did we add to this room? How much did we really light it up? How noticeable did the light become? It, it wouldn't become, be, be very noticeable. But what you guys did is you, you, you lit these candles as a community. Like the, the few came up, lit off that candle, and then you began to light other people's candles. Who began to light, we, we did it as a community, and by the end of that, we are shining brightly. And so that is what I mean here. If we just have a few lone candles lit in this room of people who say, I'm going to pursue God, I'm going to do it alone. When God lights my fire, I'll be glad about it, but I'm going to keep it to myself. We will not shine very bright as a community. We will not be very fruitful. But if we will light one another, if we will stoke one another's fires, if we will push one another on, we will shine brightly for his glory. God's 
gospel will go out. People will take notice of what's happening in here. And they will see the light of the glory of God in us. The people who he has now made the light of the world. And so we need to do this together. And so just to, to wrap things up, pray like prayer closet style. Read Matthew 6 about, about individual prayer, that, that God blesses the one. God, God answers the one who, who comes to him in that prayer closet, truly, humbly seeking his face. Like pray alone, pray individually. Please do that. But let's do this together as a community. Let's, on this, this coming Wednesday, please be here so that we can do this together. We can pursue this together. We can encourage one another to pursue this, this, this beautiful grace of God. And, and then it will go even further for, uh, for after that of like we're going to connect to the greater Christian community, the greater church in this area on, on the Wednesdays after that. Why? Because if it's just loan renewals happening, it will not last. And if it's loan renewals, we will not be as fruitful as we could be. Pray. We need revival. I, I don't know exactly where we're at. I can't put a thermometer in our church and see how hot or cold or lukewarm we are. I cannot do it. But that's what we're going to spend 21 days figuring out. God, where are we? How far have I drifted? How far have I fallen? Show, show me, show me that, that difference there. And then, and then I want to seek your face. I want to draw near to you, knowing that you will draw near to me, as James 4, 8 tells us. We're going to do this individually, and we're going to do this together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father God, we, we ask that you would reveal our wretchedness. We ask that you would help us not to fear seeing our sin, seeing our drift, seeing our lukewarmness, not to fear it because we are righteous in Christ. It is not our own righteousness. And so we don't have to be afraid of what we see when we come to you saying, God, where am I? Where is our church? Where is my family? Are, are we where we need to be? God, what am I missing? What, what am I doing that I should not be doing? What am I uh, not doing that I should be doing? God, what, what of my affections need to change? What of my, what of my values need to change? What of my actions need to change? God, help us not to fear it because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is all grace if you reveal our drift and if you reveal our sin. And so, God, I pray that you would, even beginning today, like not worrying about what day the 21 days of prayer and fasting start, that we would begin today to ask you to make us feel our deficiency and to feel our weakness and that you would lead us to cry out to you, to seek your face, to repent of whatever wrongs you reveal to us, God that you may forgive us and heal our land, that you may heal our families, that you may heal our church, that you can heal even our community through us, God. Oh, Lord, we are in absolute dependence on you. We are desperate for your presence. We are desperate for your inter intervention, both in our individual lives 
and in our church. Do this, I pray, in the name of Jesus, our only hope. Amen.